Michigan Constitution podcast, where the citizens of the Mitten State seek the pleasant peninsula between their state and federal identities through a deeper understanding of how Michigan's Constitution and its defining case law affects their everyday lives. Your host, Tony Snyder, is a licensed Michigan attorney with more than a decade of experience in private and government practice. Through this podcast, you'll better understand the unique characteristics of Michigan's Supreme Law and probably learn a few fun facts about federalism, too. And now, here's Tony. Welcome back to the Michigan Constitution Podcast. For this episode, we're going to do a one-off show to address a case which is making national news. Specifically, the case against a barber who opened his barber shop during the coronavirus epidemic in violation of Governor Whitmer's executive order requiring businesses like Mr. Mankey's Barbershop to remain closed until such time the governor believed it safe to operate said business. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. It is not legal advice. It is not legal expertise. Although I am a licensed attorney in the state of Michigan, I make no warranties as to the veracity of the statements I make within this podcast. First of all, I don't practice constitutional law. I practice administrative law. Second, the laws change on a day-to-day basis, as does case law. What might be applicable the day I make a statement about the Michigan Constitution could very well be outdated the day I post this podcast. If you think you're going to become a Michigan Constitution scholar because of my podcast, you're sadly mistaken. You'd do better with a Ouija board and a Magic 8-Ball. If you need Michigan legal advice, you would be well served to contact the state of Michigan and ask for their lawyer referral service program for a referral to an attorney who specializes in your legal matter. On or about March 19, 2020, Governor Whitmer issued Executive Order 2020-20. Now, let me explain that a little bit. 2020 is the year that the executive order is issued, and the dash 20 means that it was the 20th executive order of that year to be issued. Amongst many other things, and for the purposes of this particular episode here, it prohibited non-essential personal care services. The executive order went on to define personal care services as hair, nail, tanning, massage, tattoos, piercings, and other things of that like. Our lead character in this story is a barber from Owasso, Michigan, in the county of Shiawassee. Mr. Mankey complied with the executive order through all of March and April, until May 4th when he refused to continue compliance with the shutdown order and he reopened his barbershop in violation of the executive order. The state of Michigan, specifically the Department of Health and Human Services, or also referred to as DHHS, went to a local Shiawassee County Circuit Court judge, because the barber is operating in Owasso, which is a city within the county of Shiawassee, and they requested the local judge to issue both a temporary restraining order and a preliminary injunction to stop Mr. Minky, our barber here, from continuing the operation of his barbershop. The judge denied both requests. As such, the state of Michigan appealed the county judge's decision to the Michigan Court of Appeals, where the Court of Appeals told the local Shiawassee County judge he needed to hold a hearing and then issue an opinion and order regarding the state's request. The local judge rules in favor of the barber stating it was a close call, but the judge was not fully convinced there was a need for an injunction. 
So the state of Michigan, again, more specifically the Department of Health and Human Services, once again appealed the decision of the local judge back to the Court of Appeals, asking the Court of Appeals to tell the local judge he must grant the state its request for a preliminary injunction and that Mr. Mankey must close the operation of his barbershop. So the question becomes, what is a preliminary injunction and when must it be issued? Based on case law, the goal of a preliminary injunction is to maintain the status quo until a final hearing can be held regarding the controversy. Well, what exactly is the status quo which is to be maintained, you asked? Well, the status quo, again, as determined by case law, is whatever the status was just before the controversy at hand arose. Here, in our case, the status quo was that non-essential personal care services like barbershops were to be closed. The executive order issued by the governor required barbershops to be closed. Remember, Mr. Mankey complied with the executive order when he closed his barbershop from May 18th until May 4th. Therefore, to maintain the status quo would be to order the barbershop closed while determining whether any reopening was lawful. But to be clear, status quo is going back to a closed barbershop the controversy at hand is Mr. Mankey reopening his barbershop despite the executive order. What the state was asking the court to do was tell Mr. Mankey he would get his day in court to determine whether he must keep his barbershop closed, but while that legal debate was being heard, he cannot continue cutting hair and operating his business. This refusal to grant the preliminary injunction by the local judge is what was presented to the Michigan Court of Appeals. So now that we know what a preliminary injunction does, next we need to figure out when it should be granted. This should not surprise you. Case law has outlined four factors by which a judge should grant a preliminary injunction. Although I'm going to go through them one by one, let me give you the four factors and then we'll talk about how the Court of Appeals came to find that the preliminary injunction should be granted in favor of the state, thus against Mr. Mankey the Barber. First, what is the likelihood that the party seeking the injunction will prevail on the merits of the case? Second, is there danger that the party seeking the injunction will suffer irreparable harm if the injunction is not issued? Third, who is harmed more based on the injunction being or not being granted? Last, what harm is there to the public interest if an injunction is issued. Okay, again, I'm, I'm going to go through these one by one as it relates to the Department of Health and Human Services requesting the preliminary injunction against the barber. But I want you to think about a preliminary injunction as merely pressing the pause button on Mr. Mankey cutting hair until a trial, for lack of a better word, can be held to determine if he can continue operating his barbershop. First factor. What is the likelihood that the party seeking the injunction will prevail on the merits of the case? This particular factor is where the Court of Appeals spent the super majority of its time regarding the case. As such, this is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time. What this first factor really means is when the day comes that a trial is held against the barber for opening his doors in opposition of the executive order, what is the likelihood that the state would win their case against Mr. Mankey? If there's a good chance the state is going to be victorious against Mr. Mankey and his violation of the executive order proven, 
then that can be a factor in granting the preliminary injunction. For that reason, it's almost like a mini-trial is being held to forecast what would likely be the successful party in a traditional full-blown trial. The Court of Appeals notes that the state's request for injunctive relief is premised on the assertion that the barber's actions create an imminent danger to the public health. So let me repeat that one more time. The Court of Appeals notes that the state's request for injunctive relief is premised on the assertion that the barber's actions create an imminent danger to the public health. Now, under the Michigan Public Health Code, and for the purposes of our case study here, an imminent danger is defined to mean an existing condition or practice that could reasonably be expected to cause death, disease, or other serious physical harm. And I'll, and I'll repeat that again. An imminent danger is defined to mean an existing condition or practice that could reasonably be expected to cause death, disease, or serious physical harm. The Michigan Public Health Code even goes so far as to expressly acknowledge an epidemic presents a danger to the health and welfare of the public and the need for exceptional actions be taken to control the spread of the disease. The Court of Appeals went on to note it was the legislature, by statute, who gave the authority to the Department of Health and Human Services because of the department's expertise in the realm of what constitutes quote-unquote public health. Said another way, the legislature believed the Department of Health and Human Services that they were the most appropriate people to determine if something was an epidemic and if something was an imminent threat to the health and welfare of the residents of the state of Michigan. And this is all because of their expertise, their education, the knowledge, and frankly, the day-to-day -day experiences that the people who work within DHHS experience. So the Court of Appeals determined that this authority, as given by the legislature to the department, would certainly include the authority to close down a barbershop during a public health epidemic. The governor issued a state of emergency, issued an executive order shutting down places like barbershops, and DHHS would be the logical department to enforce the executive order because of the public health code. More so, the Court of Appeals stated that it was Mr. Mankey who would have to argue the department overstepped its statutory authority, but that Mr. Mankey failed to present any evidence the barbershop was not a serious public health danger. The Court of Appeals really smacks the local judge around over two main contentions. First was related to evidence presented by the department regarding pictures taken and circulated by the media at Mr. Mankey's barbershop. And second was Dr. Caldoun's sworn affidavit. By the way, she's the state of Michigan's chief medical examiner, and if you've watched even one press conference, you've seen her discuss the coronavirus. First, as it relates to the pictures that the state provided the local judge, the Court of Appeals thought the judge didn't give enough value or enough weight to the pictures, which would show some folks inside and outside the barbershop wearing and not wearing masks nor were they maintaining six feet of space between individuals. Both mask wearing and six feet of distancing between people have been alleged to be the best way to minimize the transmission of COVID-19 to one another. The Court of Appeals even went so far as to say the local judge seemed to treat evidence obtained from news sources differently depending on which party the evidence favored. Or said another way, 
the appeals court called out the local trial judge for giving preferential treatment to the barber and his pictures versus similar photographs presented by the state. The other instance where the Court of Appeals quote-unquote threw shade at the local judge was when they said the local judge criticized Dr. Caldoun's affidavit for not explaining how she concluded that the barbershop presented a public health risk, yet in the same breath that the local judge conceded this conclusion by Dr. Caldoun did make sense to him. The Court of Appeals said that the local judge was wrong for second-guessing the doctor's medical conclusions. Ouch. The Court of Appeals also said this local judge dismissed the doctor's statements despite the barber offering no evidence disputing he was in imminent danger to the public. Double ouch. So, what was the barber arguing to the local judge exactly? He argued the executive order Governor Whitmer issued was unconstitutional. He believed he had a First Amendment right to freedom of speech under the United States Constitution. Mr. Mankey argued freedom of speech includes expressive speech. Much like burning a flag is considered expressive speech, thus protected by the First Amendment, he argued cutting hair was expressive speech. He doesn't like the actions taken by the government, so he's going to protest, not with words, but with action. The Michigan Court of Appeals said, essentially, nice try, but get out of here with that. They noted that the United States Supreme Court has ruled there are limits to conduct intending to express an idea. And those limits can be imposed when there is an important governmental interest at stake. In our case, the important governmental interest of limiting speech is in containing the spread of COVID-19, the Court of Appeals said. Therefore, this court did not believe a First Amendment argument was going to be a winning argument for Mr. Mankey. One other unsuccessful argument that Mr. Mankey presented to the Court of Appeals was an equal protection argument, claiming he was being treated differently than other businesses which were allowed to stay open. The court ruled that Mr. Mankey wasn't being treated differently because of his skin color or his gender or ethnicity, but instead because of his occupation. The occupation you choose is neither a protected class nor a fundamental right. As such, a rational basis test is used when addressing economic regulations. It is rational for a government to temporarily close a business in which individuals are within close proximity to one another, and quite frankly, the governor tells us, a haircut is not a life necessity. You will not die when you cannot dye your roots. <laughs> See what I did there? For all of the above reasons, the Court of Appeals believed the state would likely prevail on the merits of this case and found factor number one in favor of DHHS. Next factor. Is there danger that the party seeking the injunction will suffer irreparable harm if the injunction is not issued? With this factor, a court must decide whether irreparable harm exists, or said another way, that there is absolutely no way to cure or undo the harm that's created if the court should refuse to issue the injunctive relief that's requested. Here, the Court of Appeals found that the trial judge erroneously dismissed the doctor's conclusions that the irreparable harm in this instance is the spread of the coronavirus. After all, once people congregating within six feet of one another without masks spread the virus to one another... Not only are they now infected, but they will go out 
and they will spread the virus to other people with whom they come into contact. Contracting the virus cannot be undone. You cannot unring that bell, so to speak. So for that reason, the Court of Appeals found there would be irreparable harm if the injunction were not granted. Third factor. Who is harmed more based on whether the injunction is granted or is not granted? The idea here is to determine would the barber be harmed more than the state if the injunction were to be granted, or would the state be harmed more by the injunction not being granted? Right out of the gate, the Michigan Court of Appeals zings the local court judge by stating that the judge substituted his own personal judgment versus the judgment of the experts. Remember, the state is arguing that the harm they as the state face is directly correlated to the harm the public would face if the barbershop were allowed to stay open, and this allows for the possible spread of the virus. The Court of Appeals felt that the judge rejected uncontested evidence when Dr. Caldoun proffered the data that COVID-19 is a highly communicable illness, was spread by infected people showing no symptoms to warn of possible infection, and can reach people separate from the area of contamination. It's not as though the virus stays in one spot, but instead it's transferred all over the state of Michigan by the individuals who carry it around with them but never know they're infected. So, for those reasons, the Court of Appeal ruled that the local judge should have found in favor of the state because the risk to the citizenry of Michigan was at a greater risk of harm than was to Mr. Mankiar Barber, who was the subject of the preliminary injunction. Last factor, what harm is there to the public interest if the injunction is issued? The Court of Appeals gave one sentence to this factor by merely reiterating their reasoning from the previous factors and stated, and I'm kind of paraphrasing here, we agree with the trial court that this factor weighs in appellant's favor or the state's favor. Unfortunately, the Court of Appeals didn't give any more insight as to why the local judge found in favor of the state for this one-off factor in the first place, so we'll leave it at that. Therefore, the Court of Appeals overturned the judge's decision and ordered the local judge to grant the state's requested preliminary injunction against Mr. Mankey and to order the barber must immediately cease all operations at his barbershop, and if he doesn't, there is contempt of court as punishment to be used against him. But we're not done with the Court of Appeals just yet because Judge Brock Swartzel wrote his own opinion concurring in part and dissenting in part. See, there are three people per Court of Appeals motion panel, and Judge Swartzel didn't think his other two judge colleagues were following the proper rules that are set out for the Court of Appeals judges. The other two, and in this instance they're known as the majority since, you know, two is a majority of three, that they agreed with everything that we've been talking about over the last, you know, what, 10 or 15 minutes thus. But Judge Swartzel, he partially agreed, but he also disagreed with the outcome of this case. In this instance, Judge Swartzel noted that he agreed with three aspects of what his other two colleagues had decided. One, he agreed that the state's request for a temporary restraining order against Mr. Mankey was moot, and I'm not even going to get into that because it's it truly is a, a, a moot point now, and, and you don't need to worry about that. Second, he also agreed that the Court of Appeals indeed needs to grant immediate consideration on these motions in front of them, and that's, you know, 
versus allowing this particular case just to work its traditional way through the process in a, you know, kind of wait your turn, wait in line situation. He, he saw the value of, of uh, dealing with it right now. And thirdly, he agreed that the state's request for an appeal related to the local judge denying the preliminary injunction should be granted and be handled by the Court of Appeals. Because remember, the Court of Appeals doesn't have an obligation to hear an appeal by the state of what Mr. Mankey is doing. It's the Court of Appeals having the belief that this issue was of such importance that they should hear this appeal. And that's why Judge Swartzel agreed with his other two colleagues on accepting this particular appeal that we're talking about today. However, where Judge Swartzel thinks his two other colleagues got it wrong was when the two judges reversed the local judge's decision and immediately required the barber to cease his barbershop operations. Now, <laughs> this gets technical here, so stick with me, and I, and I need you to stick with me because the Michigan Supreme Court relies upon Judge Swartzel's reasoning in their decision to reverse the Michigan Court of Appeals decision that we've been talking about all along. What Judge Swartzel is arguing is that his two colleagues violated a Michigan court rule regarding something referred to as a quote-unquote special motion. Now, we're going to talk about Michigan court rule 7.211C4, and it reads as follows, quote, motion for peremptory reversal. The appellant may file a motion for peremptory reversal on the ground that reversible error is so manifest that an immediate reversal of the judgment or order appealed from should be granted without formal argument or submission. The decision to grant a motion for peremptory reversal must be unanimous. An order denying a motion for peremptory reversal may identify the judge or judges who would have granted it, but for the unanimity required of this subrule, unquote. Woof. Okay, so let's just put this in everyday language. The state could file their motion for this peremptory reversal, you know, basically asking the Court of Appeals judges to jump right in and reverse the local judge's decision. If the three Court of Appeal judges thought that the local judge was so far out in left field that it was massively important to take such immediate action and that no formal argument was even necessary. However, for that to happen, all three judges would have had to agree to that. But see, this case was decided by the three judges without actual arguments by the parties submitting briefs and or presenting oral arguments to the judges. Judge Swartzel believed before reversal of the local judge's decision could be ordered, the Court of Appeals first needed to create something called a merits panel, quote-unquote merits panel, which is made up of randomly drawn members of the entire Michigan Court of Appeals. It would include oral arguments. There would be an opportunity for amicus curie briefs to be submitted arguing for and against the barber, and a unanimous vote would have to occur by the members seated on the merit panel. Judge Swartzel's argument was that this decision to immediately reverse the local judge's decision was made by a motion panel, not a merit panel. I know, it's, it's super technical here, but the judge's point is to say there are Michigan court rules that tell the Court of Appeals how they are supposed to operate, particularly if they're going to issue this type of peremptory reversal. Judge Swartzel concluded his dissent by stating, and I'm quoting here, 
rather than grant peremptory relief to the state, I would have joined in an order submitting this case for plenary review on an expedited basis by a merits panel randomly drawn from the entire court with the opportunity for oral argument, unquote. This Court of Appeals ruling was issued by our three judges on May 28th. Well, fast forward a week later to Friday, June 5th. The Michigan Supreme Court, by a vote of 7-0, and to be clear, that's a unanimous decision by the Michigan Supreme Court, they voted to vacate the order of the Michigan Court of Appeals. <laughs> yes, all the discussion that we've been having about you know how there are four factors to consider and all the reasonings that we've just listed as to why the state met those four factors and how the local judge got it wrong, that was completely erased by a 7-0 to zero decision of the Michigan Supreme Court. So what gives? They agreed with Judge Swartzel that a plenary review should be considered by the Michigan Court of Appeals. So all the reasonings that Judge Swartzel laid out in his dissent and how the specific Michigan court rule regarding peremptory reversal is stated, that was indeed the proper procedure regarding how the Court of Appeals should have handled the matter back on May 28th. But Justice David Viviano wrote a concurring opinion that deserves some attention, both because of how he explains why the Court of Appeals got it wrong and how they should handle these issues that they're going to be tackling in the future, but also because, honestly, his footnotes were as long or longer than the actual opinion that he wrote. And I'm not necessarily going to get into the, the footnotes per se, but I at least wanted to point out it's, uh, it's interesting to me that sometimes what a judge puts in footnotes is kind of a wink, wink, nudge, nudge way of explaining something that he's saying in more, let's say, technical terms, but I digress. To begin, Justice Viviano lambastes the two judges the way they zinged the local judge when they wrote their own opinion. Justice Viviano wrote, and I quote here, It appears patently clear that two members of the Court of Appeals motion panel have no power to grant peremptory relief. Unquote. <laughs> Ouch. Justice Viviano went on to say, quote, Doing so over Judge Swartzel's explicit objection and without responding to it is inexplicable. Unquote. <laughs> Double ouch. But here's where things get good. Quoting from Justice Viviano's opinion, he said, and I quote, It is incumbent on the courts to ensure decisions are made according to the rule of law, not hysteria. Here, in addition to entering an order whose validity is highly suspect, the Court of Appeals majority took the extraordinary step of directing the trial court to take immediate action despite the fact that an application for leave had already been filed in our court. He went on to say, Whether it did so wittingly or unwittingly, the Court of Appeals appears to have ordered this case to proceed despite the filing of an application in our court when the Court of Appeals gave its May 29, 2020 order immediate effect. Justice Viviano concluded his opinion thusly, Courts decide legal questions that arise in the cases that come before us according to the rule of law. One hopes that this great principle, essential to any free society, including ours, will not itself become yet another casualty of COVID-19, unquote. Wow, he, he certainly minces no words. Well, there you have it, folks. This is where it stands, at least as of today's recording, Monday, June 8th, 2020. 
Did the barber win on a technicality? Yeah, sorta. The way the Court of Appeals should have handled it was to grant leave to appeal the decision of the local judge, but then allow a merits panel, not a motion panel, to weigh the four factors and issue a peremptory reversal, if they were even going to. It's a technicality because it could have easily been assigned to a group of Court of Appeal judges to allow oral arguments and allow for briefs to be submitted and and then upon a unanimous panel of those judges to determine if a peremptory reversal was appropriate or not. But Justice Viviano's point should not be lost on us. He even quotes a few lines from the play The Man of All Seasons in his footnotes, and while I will spare you my theatrics, the long and short of Justice Viviano's point should not be lost on us. The rule of law, in this instance being the Michigan Court Rule 7.211c4, should have been followed, but it was not. And for our laws to mean anything, pandemic or otherwise, the laws must be followed. Look, I don't attempt here to forecast the future of this case. There will, no doubt, be reams of paper that will be written by both sides of this issue. What rights does the governor and appropriate department have to enforce governor's executive orders and statutory laws? What constitutional rights does a barber have to protest those executive orders and statutory laws? Many groups representing many members arguing many rights will be put forth in the coming months and, let's be honest, probably years. Well, stay tuned to me to learn what you need to know. The Michigan Constitution Podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not offer legal advice or create an attorney-client relationship. This podcast is hosted by Tony Snyder. For more information, visit TonySnyder.com, send an email to podcast at TonySnyder.com, or follow Tony on Twitter at Tony Snyder. Catch new episodes on the 1st and 15th of each month. Thanks for listening.